For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This right here is a throwback episode. Nearly a year ago when I pitched the Drake Magazine's editorial staff on this whole podcast thing, I needed an example of the kind of stories I'd be making. And this is that first audio story that led to the creation of this podcast. It's a bit rough, but stick around. But that's just the first part of this episode. In the second half, we're going to hear from frequent Drake contributor Michael Wright. Michael's the environmental reporter for the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, and last year he stumbled upon a pretty big story, which he wrote about for our website. But now, the first episode of the Drake cast. Check, check, one, two. So I'm driving through the middle of suburbia. A couple months ago, a buddy told me about a secret spot in the hills outside of Denver. We've got a tan house with a two-car garage, followed by another tan house with a two-car garage. Turn right onto South High Street. Looks like I might be here, pulling up to a tan house with a two-car garage. And this wasn't a hidden pond with monster bass or a drainage ditch with carp. I was here to meet a guy named Peter Stitcher. Welcome to Scent Fly Fishing. Peter opened a garage door to reveal a bare-bones fly shop. I had made it to a Scent Fly Fishing's world headquarters. We're kind of like when you're looking for weed as a teenager and your buddy's like, hey, I know a guy. And uh, yeah, you go over and he's got a great stash. People come over here, you know, in the sleepy suburbs, we open the door and they see 400,000 flies. We're kind of the, the dirty secret of the Denver fly fishing scene. And here at the Drake, we like our secrets to be a little dirty. I figured I'd roll into Peter's garage, find a few flies, and write a quick piece for the magazine's website. And I did that. While poking around the converted carport, Peter shared a few pointers that led me on a journey. Tiny bugs, cold hands, malfunctioning alternators, and some dank-ass flies are only part of the adventure. Stick around. So, if it wasn't clear before, Peter runs a fly shop out of his garage. But Peter isn't just another trout bum looking to turn his passion into a profession. Well, it's partially that. But Peter has some special qualifications that give him a step up on the competition. I'm an aquatic biologist. I work with a firm called ERC. So we built the Blue River through Silverthorn, Boxwood Gulch, Longmeadow Ranch. Now, we're not going to get into the ethics of building better trout habitat because we already did that in episode number 10, which is titled Stream Implants. You can find a link on our website. I'm like a, a trout double agent. You know, they trust me, I make their habitat, and then I, I tell people how to catch them. Peter has taken his undercover findings and turned this knowledge into a business. Yeah, the passion is to equip people not just with the flies, but the knowledge that's going to give them success on the water. In addition to selling flies, Peter holds classes that teach anglers how to better read a river and catch more fish, without having to swing by the local shop for a bit of intel. I don't know, man. I mean, we got, yeah, we got plans really to shake the industry. Um, yeah, I don't want this to be like an insider sport and the need to have years invested just to start having success. I mean, we want to cut that down, and I want people picking up the fly rod for the first time to be able to go out, connect a few of the puzzle pieces, and start catching fish. Industry-wide disruption may be a bit of a lofty goal, but then again, they claim that Google was founded in a garage. You know, the more people we can get into the sport, they're going to become passionate about not just fly fishing, but 
trout in their habitat and become, you know, we're creating conservationists. We're creating people that are passionate about protecting and sharing this. So I want to make the sport um, accessible to everybody. Good intentions. But what are these puzzle pieces that lead to catching more fish? First of all, Peter explained that no matter how far you can cast, no matter how many rods you own, you gotta have the right flies. Showing up at the river and fishing with the wrong flies is like going to a tailgate party with tofu, you're not gonna get a lot of takers. I mean, once you get to the tailgate, like, ah, oh, it's hot wings and it's beer. So there's five places on and around the river that I look to tell me what's on the menu on that water on that day. I've coined a sampling method called the pause method. Pause like a break, not your dog's feet. P is parking lot to the river. A is above the water, U is under the water, S is spider webs, and then E is edges and eddies. Let's get into a little more detail. P, parking lot to the river. I mean, my sampling starts at the truck. Am I hearing cicadas chirping, crickets? Am I seeing you know, grasshoppers jumping away from my feet? As I push through the streamside vegetation, are we kicking off swarms of caddisflies? A is for above the river. Are there swallows over the river swooping and diving? So just as the fish are following the bugs to the surface of the water, the swallows are there to meet the hatch once it comes off the water. So that's a good indicator that there's dry fly action. Just understanding like the flight behavior of different bugs. Mayflies have a very distinctive wave-like motion over the water. Caddisflies are like ADHD kids pounding Mountain Dew. I mean, they're chaotic all over the place. And then stoneflies are like big old Chinook helicopters. So um, just by seeing, recognizing those three flight patterns, I take that information into my fly box. You? Under the water, 99.9% .9 of the life cycle of the bugs and probably 75% of where fish are feeding is under the water. Yeah, I sane the water. When Peter says sane, he's talking about using a fine mesh net to collect samples of the bugs that are in the lake or river. I'll go out into the riffles with a sane over my net, push it down to the bottom of the stream, do a little dance kicking the, the rocks upstream, and that washes down a really healthy sample of what the bugs are, their life cycles. You know, who's home in that river? So when you pull that up, it's like picking up a, a menu off the table. The S. Spider webs. Spiders are PhD level entomologists. They know exactly what's hatching. So if you can find active spider webs on the side of the river, there's very fresh sample of what's hopping and hatching around there. And that's all dry fly information. Like hold your box up next to the spider web, get close. And then E is edges and eddies. They're like little black holes of bug collection. So what's been hatching or dying or floating on the water is just gonna collect there. I left Peter's garage with my newfound knowledge. I also grabbed a couple dozen flies, a seine, a water thermometer, and a magnifying glass to get a closer look at the bugs. Two days later, in the middle of November, I had a chance to put the pause method to the test. My friend Ben agreed to join me. We decided to check out a small tailwater a couple hours outside of Denver that neither of us had been to before. Okay, Ben, where are we? We are at the top of Berthet Pass. And temperature is? 10 degrees. And this is the second car that we've been in today <laughs> yeah. because the alternator on my van decided to shit the bed this morning. Well, we had headed out earlier but faced a minor setback. My trusty steed, a 2000 Ford Windstar, just wasn't up to the task. Her alternator kicked the bucket before we even made it to Golden. We left her at a roadside parking lot and ended up in Ben's Audi. He drove a lot faster than I did. Alrighty, we've made it to the parking lot. Now we gotta start with the P, parking lot to the river. My sampling starts at the truck. Peter's advice hung in the air and echoed through our minds. What are you seeing so far, Ben? Seen a whole lot of nothing. 
lots of snow and absolutely no insects. I checked my water thermometer while it was still dry. It registered the air temp at 31 degrees. Needless to say, we didn't push up any insects on our walk to the water. Made it to the river. A, above the water. What kind of flight patterns of bugs are you seeing here, Ben? Seeing a similar pattern to the parking lot, which is uh, just about nothing. We weren't totally discouraged, just pretty cold. As Peter had said, most of the action is going on underwater. I slipped the seine over my net. Its loose fit reminded me of the time I accidentally bought a Magnum condom. I hoped that the seine prevented the microscopic creatures from passing through better than the ill-fitting condom had. We didn't have a plan B. Doing a little kick dance. Come on, scrape up the bottom. Ben stuck the net in the water and caught the debris I kicked up. After the seine was covered with crud, we inspected. So what are we seeing here, Ben? I have no idea. Looks, I think it's a caddisfly larva. Because they're popping out of casing. We had absolutely no idea what we were talking about. There, no, 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 that's a... What else we got in there? There's a lot of those. They're probably about a size 18. I would say. Let's put that under the magnifying glass and unfold it here and put it on the scale. That looks looks like, like shrimp almost. Yeah, it looks like it's seven millimeters. That's a size 18 hook. The light pan scud pattern could work. Yeah. I tossed one of the bugs in a sample vial after measuring it. Given the conditions, we skipped the S, seeing as every surface available to spiders was covered in snow. To finish off the acronym, we stumbled into an eddy. Oh, look at this. Tadpole. Oh, look at the tad. So streamers might be good in here, too. You catch him? <laughs> look at how big that is. That might be like a sculpin of some sort. I like how you had a net and you still tried to grab it with your hand. By this point, the water thermometer read 42 degrees. Peter had sent me an email detailing the finer points of on-the-water thermometer sorcery. The best line from which read, To the informed and aware fly fisher, the glass of the thermometer is like a crystal ball looking into your fly fishing future. Well said, Peter. Apparently fish don't consistently feed in water temps below 50 degrees. We tied on light-colored scud patterns that resembled the bugs in the seine and got to work. We made our way closer to the dam and warmer water temperatures. The thermometer on my boot read 50 degrees when I saw my first fish. An 8-inch rainbow hovered in the middle of the water column. He lazily ate my scud. Sticking with the theme of our trip, I missed the hook set. We stopped at a few more streams on our drive back to Denver, but left the pause method in the car. We didn't find any fish, but we did find a liquor store. We ended up spending more time choosing our bourbon than we did our flies. As far as winter fishing at 9,000 feet goes, you can probably drop the SAP and just go with the EU method. Edges, eddies, and underwater cues will be your best bet. Feel free to take samples of the bugs you collect in your seine home with you. If you're at all like me, the bugs will decompose in your bag until your next fishing adventure. But folks, don't let my lack of luck dissuade you from considering Peter's ideas. The pause method probably works very well if you check the forecast before you head out. And bringing this into the present, being fall 2017... Then fly fishing, this is Peter. I called up Peter the other day to chat about his latest scheme to catch more fish. Yeah, we've taken the pause method, and now we're saying you're going to pause before you match. Ah, another acronym. So once you get all the information from the pause method, now you're going to follow the letters in MATCH to help you choose the best fly for the conditions. 
and MATCH stands for? M stands for the most abundant. What you're seeing the most of in the sample you've collected. More mayfly nymphs versus stonefly nymphs. More midges versus caddis larvae. I mean, we're going to give preference in our fly selection to what we're seeing the most of. Because most likely, that's also what the fish are seeing the most of and are feeding most uh, aggressively on. A is approximate size and profile. You know, trout are, they're not counting the number of tails on your flies to check if the mayfly or stonefly nymph. I mean, they're just looking at the approximate shape of it. Does this look uh, close to what I'm seeing a lot of? And that's what they're going to be chasing. T is trout feeding behavior. We're going to join the trout where they're at in the water column, where they're feeding. So even if we've seen a ton of, let's say, blueing olive nymphs on the water in a certain day, we're going to kind of acquiesce and move with the trout as they start porpoising through the surface of the water, rolling in the surface of the water. Well, their behavior is telling us that maybe they're off the nymphs on the bottom of the river and they're following those emergers to the surface. So we're changing our rig, we're changing our flies, matching that life cycle now that they are shifting and focusing on. So we move with the trout. C is going to be color. So we've gotten close in profile and size, and then we're going to utilize some colors that are going to grab their attention, seduce their aggression, and have them chase our fly versus 10,000 other bugs in the water. H stands for half an hour. If I'm not hooking up, if I'm not getting looks, if I'm not getting strikes in half an hour, I'm kind of reassessing my rig. I'm going back to the pause method, double-checking what I'm seeing, and I'm changing my flies and my setup. But that is kind of the culmination of the pause before you match method. It's about simplifying it. So again, it's not important to know the name of every bug on the water or even every bug in your box. I mean, it makes it intuitive, you know? Great. Pause before you match. I did a little goofing around with the match method and came up with my own acronym that I believe to be a bit more intuitive. Same concepts, just different letters. B standing for the behavior of the trout, where are they feeding? L being the length of time you spend before changing flies, maybe half an hour. S, the size of the bugs you're seeing. A, the abundance of the bugs. What are you seeing the most of? And C, color. This acronym spells out B-L-S-A-C, or if you will, ball sack. So it's up to you whether or not you'd like to match or ball sack after you pause. But seriously, Peter, thanks for the awesome tips. To learn more about Peter's operation, visit AscentFlyFishing.com for some screaming deals on flies and other fine water witchcraft merchandise. In the second half of this episode, we're going to hear from Montana reporter Michael Wright about a pretty big story he broke last year. So the numbers of dead fish we were counting on a periodic basis every time we looked um, kept going up. And they were going up at a, a pretty exponential rate to where we, were, we knew we were losing tens of thousands. But before we get to hear from Mr. Wright, a few words from our sponsors. This episode of the Drake Cast is brought to you by Scott Flyrods. I got Jim Barchi, the president of Scott Flyrods, on the phone the other day. Well, it's pretty amazing is that since 1974, Scott has done one thing and one thing only, and that's handcraft high-performance fly rods. That's it. I asked Jim why he uses a Scott fly rod. Okay, um, uh, that's easy. Why would I fish with something other than the rod I made? Well played, Jim. Check them out at your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. This episode is also brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. This is Bessie Buholtz with Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. 
As the industry leader in fly fishing travel, we specialize in sending anglers all around the world in search of the very best fly fishing opportunities and experiences. We offer a fantastic lineup for both freshwater and saltwater, with more than 190 operations in 26 different countries. This week's featured destination is New Zealand. Home to the largest and most beautiful brown trout in the world, the rivers of New Zealand are legendary to anyone who is serious about freshwater fishing. This is the destination for anglers looking to target trophy browns while sight fishing the country's crystal clear waters. Give us a call here at Yellow Dog or visit us online at yellowdogflyfishing.com. And remember that while there's a lot of ways to get there, there's only one way to do it right. Alrighty, back to the show. Test, test. Oh, God damn it. You want to turn that off? So this is Michael Wright. He's in his early 20s, has a scruffy beard that, surprisingly enough, isn't hipster ironic. Michael's a reporter for the Bozeman Daily Chronicle in Bozeman, Montana. I, I should probably say, my, my job is to cover the environment here. So um, I cover Yellowstone, I cover wildfires, I cover bison, bears, and all that fun stuff. Uh, fish, when they die. And like I mentioned, last year, Michael stumbled upon a pretty big story. Drastic measures are being taken in Montana tonight to stop a deadly invader that's killing thousands of fish. Officials have shut down nearly 200 miles of the popular Yellowstone River. As our Joe Fryer explains, that's a big deal for a state where recreation is a $6 billion a year industry. And earlier this week, Michael wrote a piece for the website reflecting on his whole experience with the Yellowstone River fish kill back in fall 2016. Here's Michael Wright's story. Chasing the Yellowstone River fish kill. The red light on my desk phone was blinking. I hate when it blinks first thing in the morning. It usually means somebody has called to tell me I'm stupid. People love to hate their local newspaper, and they love to call reporters and tell them about it. But that day in August 2016, the message wasn't vitriol. It was a legitimate news tip. Someone was calling to tell me about a bunch of dead whitefish in the Yellowstone River. I looked back at my notes recently. The only things I wrote down were lots of dead whitefish, not just a few whitefish, a lot of dead whitefish. It was a Friday morning, and there weren't many answers. Phone calls to biologists confirmed that there were indeed whitefish rotting on the banks of the Yellowstone, hundreds of them, and more floating downstream. One woman from Livingston told me about seeing one every five feet as she floated the river. Over the next few days, official estimates just kept growing, landing somewhere in the tens of thousands of dead whitefish, joined by a few suckers and a few trout. But nobody could immediately say why the fish were dying. People told me whitefish are like the canary in the coal mine, that seeing them die can signal bigger problems in a river system. The river was low and hot, but there was reason to believe something else was going on. A week after that first voicemail, I sat in the conference room at the regional office of the Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Other reporters were there, and so were a handful of outfitters and fly shop owners. We all knew what was coming. State officials took turns at the podium to explain that a parasite had joined forces with poor conditions to knock out the fish. It had happened before, on the South Fork of the Snake and the Henry's Fork, every year since 2012. It was the third time the parasite had been discovered in Montana, but the first time with a major fish kill. They still don't know exactly how it got into the Yellowstone, 
but the prevailing theory then was that it hitchhiked over on an unwashed boat or dirty boots or waders. In response, the state closed 183 miles of the Yellowstone River and every tributary between Gardner and Laurel to all recreation. You couldn't fish, float, or swim. You couldn't throw a stick into the river for your dog. The state officials said keeping people out of the river was meant to help the remaining fish survive, maybe build up some resistance. Maybe it would stop it from spreading elsewhere. An hour later, I went to Livingston. I went down the day they closed the river, which was, I mean, that's a weird sight, man. I, watching everybody just like file their boats into the uh, coin-operated car washes and seeing game wardens like wave people off the river. And then for the next few weeks, I mean, the river being empty is also an eerie sight too. I stopped by a boat inspection station that had been set up overnight between Livingston and Bozeman, where FWP staffers decontaminated boats and tried to ensure the parasite wouldn't make it anywhere else. It was eventually found in 10 other rivers around the state, including the Gallatin and the Madison. Saturday morning came. I put the morning paper in my stack of keepers and spent the afternoon washing my boots and waders. My job is weird. Covering the environment often means wallowing in disaster and its aftermath. This event, all these dead fish, it wasn't an earthquake, or a hurricane, or a devastating wildfire. People weren't dying. But a river was hurting. And because of the closure, so was the community and economy that depends on it. Just visit the Dan Bailey Fly Fishing Shop in Livingston. We should have so much noise in here. I mean, it's so quiet, it's scary. I mean, last Friday was the day of the shutdown, and the next day our business was cut in half. All because of a parasite no one really knew much about and it was my job to write about it. So, every day for the next month, I woke up with one thought. What haven't I asked yet? Public meetings and press conferences filled the week after the closure. The governor spoke on the banks of the river amidst the odor of rotting fish. White bodies floated by behind him and trout sipped flies and feeding lines, carefree. The next night, hundreds of people crammed into a building at the Livingston Fairgrounds. Fishing guides, hotel owners, ranchers, riverfront homeowners who were sick of having dead fish in their yards. Tensions over water use boiled to the surface, as some asked why irrigators weren't being told to shut their sprinklers off. In a hotel conference room the following week, state labor officials talked about unemployment insurance, job training programs, and small business loans. Ways to help people. For fishing guides and people in the rafting business and people that make 100% of their living off the river, it's dramatic. But fishing guides there were worried they couldn't get unemployment coverage, since many are independent contractors. And they scoffed at the idea of job training. They'd already found what they wanted to do. The state opened the river piece by piece in the following weeks. But on the day the last section was reopened, the river was dirtier than a teenage boy's browser history. Rain had washed mud downstream from Yellowstone National Park. Over the next several months, people in Livingston and the Paradise Valley wondered what the next summer would have in store. Would it all happen again? Snow piled up in the mountains, giving reason for optimism. But nobody knew the future. Spring runoff was big and powerful. The first weeks of August passed without incident. Then, the state heard reports of a few dozen dead fish downstream of Livingston. Biologists floated and counted, 
just like they'd done the year before. But this time, the crews didn't see anywhere near the number they saw in 2016. Fewer than 100 total between their first two floats. It's also possible that hurricanes in Texas and Florida, along with fires everywhere else in the West, made a few dead whitefish seem less disastrous than they seemed last summer. After a week, I was done asking questions. Many thanks to Michael for sharing that story with us. You can find more of Michael Wright's work by Googling his name or grabbing any issue of the Drake magazine. He's usually got something in there. Speaking of which, there's a new issue of the Drake magazine out now. The cover shot is some gorgeous river in BC, and there's even more saliva-inducing content inside. And I'm not just talking about page six. Next week, we'll have another story. Still not sure what it is, but hopefully it's a good one. Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.